Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, um, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. The word of God speaks to us. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must be put on immortality. When the the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is God's word to us. Awesome. Hey, good morning. Thanks, Suzanne. You guys can grab a seat. Hey, uh, if we've not met, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. It's really good to have you with us today. Uh, Maybe you're here today because you got dragged along to watch these baptisms. Maybe you're here and it's your first time back in church for a while. You're, you're hearing the songs. You're watching some of the professions that we've been making. And maybe you're just wondering, like, I don't know where I stand with this. I don't know what I believe about this. Or maybe you're sure that you don't believe. Uh, man, I just want to say welcome to you, if that's you. You do not have to believe what we believe to be around. We actually feel really honored that you'd be here today. And what I would say is this. Don't check your brain in at the door. Don't check your heart in at the door or your doubts, feeling like you can't bring those in. We actually would love to invite you to come in as you are, and we would love to get coffee with you or just process some of the claims of, of Christianity with you. So thanks for being here. It's a real honor. Hey, we've got two really special couple, couples with us today that I want to quickly highlight. Uh, can, I have the, uh, can I have John and Darcy Reiner stand up and the Adairs stand up? I don't want to put you on the spot, but I sort of want to put you on the spot. Uh, if, if, we, if you've not met these two uh, amazing couples, so John and Darcy, uh, they serve at our Frontline Downtown Congregation. He's one of our pastor, our operations pastors downtown, and I've known John for such a long time. I love this man. This man has uh, discipled me in many ways, helped me fall in love with the Holy Spirit more. Uh, it's just an amazing gift to our church. He's on sabbatical right now, and they decided to come to Frontline South, so we love you. We are so glad that you're with us today. It's an honor to have you. 
Um, and then over here to my left are the Adairs, David and Anna. Uh, David serves as the lead pastor of Frontline Edmond, which is maybe the best congregation of all of our congregations. I love David and Anna. They are some of the most fun people to hang out with, and he's one of my best friends and a, and a mentor to me personally. So just, man, we love y'all. They're also on sabbatical. Uh, so yeah, we can give them a hand. Apparently... Uh, if you're on sabbatical, this is a great church to show up to. I kind of want to be on sabbatical, just thinking about it. Um, it's good to have you all with us. Thanks for being here. I'm excited to dig into 1 Corinthians 15 with you. Uh, we've got some really fun stuff to unpack together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Go to chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat around you, underneath you. Uh, that's our gift to you. Take it home. And uh, we, we love to open up the Word of God together each week. So let me pray for us while you're finding chapter 15. Father, thank you for the gift that today is, just to, to witness uh, the reality of people going under the waters of baptism and what that represents, that you pursued people in death and you made us come alive by your grace. And even though we were once enemies, we were far, you came to us. And as we sing, you made us sons and you made us daughters. Now Christ is our king and God is our father. And we are so thankful for that reality. We pray today that you would, in more ways, shape us around your truth and the word, that our lives and our hopes and our expectations and the way that we build today would be in light of what you're doing in eternity. So come and move and work. We specifically pray for the Reiners and the Adairs. We pray that you would give them rest in this season. We pray that you would bless them. We pray that you would fill them. God, we pray that you would remind them, but well before you called them into the ministry, you called them to be sons and daughters and that their value is wrapped up not in what they do for your church, but in the fact that before they were even born, you, you set their, your love on them. And I pray that they would experience that, that they would have fresh vision as they come back. And we thank you for Frontline Downtown. We thank you for Frontline Edmond. We pray that you would multiply the good work that's happening there. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, I want, I want to ask you this. What comes to mind when you think about the second coming of Jesus? or the end times? What comes to your mind? What types of images flash across your brain? Uh, let me just give you a few that may come to your mind, or at least in the average Christian or average American as we think about these things. This is the first one, and it's sort of like the day of judgment, right? This is a day when we're all going to be gathered into a big room, and there's going to be a giant jumbotron, and every single sin I've ever done is going to be flashed on the TV in front of grandma, and she's going to have to see all the things that I did in private, and it's going to be kind of scary, right? Or, or maybe you sort of think of this like it's going to be fiery judgment. Ah, really, really not sure if I'm looking forward to that day full of chaos and destruction. Now, to be sure, uh, when Jesus returns, there will be judgment. In fact, the Apostles' Creed that we just recited together talks about how he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. So there is some truth here that when Jesus returns, there will be judgment. But maybe that's all you think about. Maybe that's sort of the extent of it in your imagination. Or maybe you've kind of adopted this American cultural view of wondering, man, am I good enough? Have I done enough? Has my life reflected the heart of God enough that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds so that European Jesus will let me in to heaven? And I just want to say that that's, 
That's actually not how it works, right? It's, it's not based on our good deeds or our bad deeds. It's actually based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in our place. That's our only hope. Or maybe you think about heaven like this. Like, it's a, it's a hard-to-wrap-your-head-around existence. It's a disembodied, somewhere far away, out there reality where we're not really sure, but it doesn't feel at all physical or earthly today. Uh, or maybe you think about it as an eternal worship service. Now, here, here's just an observation. Even people who love to sing don't really want to sing forever. Like, I don't even think Chris Tomlin would want to have an eternal worship service that goes on forever and ever and ever. And Not to say that we don't want to worship God, but some of us equate that with singing for all of eternity. And so you're sort of like, I guess in heaven I got to get used to singing every day, 24-7, forever. Or maybe, maybe you think about this. This is uh, kind of a, a vision of the rapture, that when Jesus returns, there's going to be people that are sucked off of the planet, and so this person here is left behind. I shared the story last week of coming home to my house as a kid. All of my family was gone. They weren't in the house, and I thought I got left behind. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was a false convert. I knew it, you know, and um, come to find out they were just next door, but maybe this is your vision. Can we just pause here? This is one of my favorite pictures ever. Uh, giant Jesus with like people getting sucked up in the vac- vacuum cleaner that is heaven. And maybe this is what you think, and you're, you're just like, yeah, when Jesus comes back, people are gonna just float off of the planet and we'll go live up there somewhere. Now, as silly as some of these photos might be to you, they really sum up my vision growing up of what I thought when Jesus returned. This really summed up how I thought about it, my vision of what would happen at the end of history when Jesus returns. In fact, I just have a confession that I'll make publicly. When I was a teenager, I used to pray that Jesus would not return. I used to pray that Jesus would not come back because I had a lot of things that I wanted to do. God, don't come back. I want to get married, and I want to travel the world, and I'd love to be a dad one day, and I've got all these things that I would like to try to accomplish. There's a life that I have to live And what's sad about that is I actually thought of the return of Jesus as the end of my life rather than as the very beginning. And here's what I found in over 15 years of ministry in Oklahoma. I'm not alone in that. I've actually talked to a lot of people that have shared similar, almost they're embarrassed to say it, but they're like, I'm afraid of heaven. I'm afraid of the giant jumbotron. I don't know that I want to live somewhere else when I really enjoy life here. And so what happens is your vision of how this thing goes down then absolutely affects the way that you live today in the present. And and if that's your vision, that one day we're going to all be disembodied souls that float off to a place called heaven when Jesus returns and all these other things, and it's going to be this giant worship, if that's the vision that you have, then what will happen is subtly you'll start to adopt the world's vision of how to live now and the good life that the world holds out to you now. And you're like, I've got to get it all in now. I have to enjoy life now because this is it. After this, we, we die, and then life is over as we know it, and there's this new, hard-to-wrap-your-head-around disembodied life that we're going to have one day in the future. Now, here, here's why I love chapter 15, is because in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is correcting some wrong views that the church at Corinth had, specifically around the resurrection. They believed, sort of, that Jesus rose from the dead, but they did not believe that all Christians would bodily, physically rise from the dead at some point in future. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul has been correcting them and he's been admonishing them and showing them how this reality of the resurrection, it it not only is true, but it changes everything for how we live in the present. And what I love about what he's doing is as Paul corrects them and their weird, wrong 
uh, beliefs. He's actually correcting and reshaping our own vision today so that we can understand what is coming for us in the future and how to live in light of that in the present. And I just wonder, like, how did we get here as a culture where heaven is a place that we're afraid of? How did we get here to, to the place as American Christians where we're sort of nervous that Jesus' return might be the end of life, not the beginning of life? Well, that's a long and complicated answer, but let me just explain it like this. I've used this analogy before, but I want to use it again. I think it's helpful. Do you have any, anyone in your life that talks during movies? Anyone? Raise your hand. Uh, those are the worst people, right? If you don't have someone in your life that talks during movies, it's because you're that person. And we have gathered here today as an intervention to tell you, stop. And we mean this in a loving way, but you're the worst, right? You are the absolute worst. Now, I don't have anyone in my life presently that talks during movies. I do have an amazing wife who likes to scroll on her phone during important shows that I'm trying to show her. I remember when I first tried to get her into the West Wing, which is the greatest show that's ever been on television ever. Um, thank you for whoever said that. You're the, a true believer is in our, in our presence. And uh, I remember sitting down. It's a 45-minute episode. And I'm showing her, and she's like, I don't, I'm not really interested. I don't really care about politics. And I'm like, no, no, you don't have to. Just, just watch it. It's amazing. So the, the show starts, and she's immediately disengaged. She's on her phone. She's scrolling. About 15 minutes go by, and she's like, what are they arguing about? And what's this person? And when did, when did that person show up? And I'm like, you have to watch the show. There's a plot being developed in the beginning of the story that you missed. And because she missed the beginning, when it gets close to the end, about the last 15 minutes, she, guess what? starts to disengage again. She's on her phone and she's scrolling. And, and then after, she's like, you know, I didn't really enjoy the show. So you didn't watch the show. You saw 10 minutes of a 45-minute episode. I didn't really understand. Why were they arguing about that? And who is he? And it's like, you've got to see the whole plot line. If you miss the beginning or if you miss the end, then the, the middle doesn't even make that much sense. And in many ways, that's what's happened with us, that we've actually inherited in my opinion, a reductionistic version of the true message of Christianity. In other words, we're missing the first 15 minutes and we're missing the last 15 minutes. It's sort of like uh, this, like my understanding of Christianity growing up in church, it's not my church's fault, I think it's my fault, but my understanding of Christianity went something like this. I've sinned, but God loves me anyway. And he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for my sins so that I can be forgiven of my sins and go to heaven when I die. That's my whole understanding of Christianity growing up. Now, there's a lot of elements of truth to that, but the, the argument that I think Paul would want to make with us is that that version is missing some really key points. In other words, we're missing the first 15 minutes and we're missing the last 15 minutes. We're missing what God designed in creation, his creational intent with creating us as embodied people on planet Earth, and we're missing the end, where Jesus returns to not rip us off the Earth, but give us new transformed bodies to live on the Earth in his kingdom. We're missing the beginning, and we're missing the end. When Paul corrects the Corinthians today, he's going to also be correcting and reshaping us. So with that in mind, three things I want you to see out of our text today. Here's the first one. I want you to see the truth about the beginning. The truth about the beginning. Look at verse 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, or I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. 
Now, there's a lot happening here, and we're going to get to some of it in just a minute, but there are two lines that Paul uses that I think are absolutely key, really fascinating. He talks about you and I as followers of Jesus inheriting two different things. Did you notice? He says that there's an inheritance of the kingdom of God, and there's an inheritance of the imperishable or imperishability, the kingdom of God and the imperishable. Now, Paul, who is a Jewish man who grew up uh, as a, as a, literally was a, a like rising star among Jew- Jewish teachers and theologians, he is saying these loaded, significant phrases that are immediately for us should bring us back to Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Now, Genesis 1 and 2, there's a lot happening, but you could really sum it up to say that Genesis 1 and 2 is about the creation of the kingdom of God. It's the creation of the kingdom of God. Now, let me just define that for you, and I'm going to define it by quoting from three different theologians and Bible teachers. George Ladd says this, He says, the kingdom of God is a realm over which our king exercises authority. Dallas Willard, he says, the kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will where what God wants done is done. And I love this from Graham Goldsworthy. He says, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place underneath God's rule and his blessing." Creation, Genesis 1 and 2, is really about the creation of the kingdom of God. We typically think of heaven as God's dwelling place, that's where God lives, and earth as human's dwelling place, that's where we live, right? So God lives up there, we live down here. But in the beginning, it was not supposed to be that way. God actually created earth, specifically the Garden of Eden, to be as a a place where heaven and earth would overlap, as it were, and the Garden of Eden was to be a kingdom where God would reign and rule over humanity, where he would live not far away from us, but with us on planet earth. This was God's original design. We had two things as humans in Genesis 1 and 2 that are absolutely essential to wrap your head around. We had the kingdom of God and we had imperishable life. We had life as it was designed to be, life everlasting with God, life with the life giver, and and everything around us was the way that it was designed to be in God's good order. But you know the story. You know the story if you've been a part of church that this didn't last that long, that Adam and Eve, they chose to rebel against God, and it was more about them just eating fruit that God did not like. That's not the story. What was happening when Adam chose to sin was that he reached out to become his own God. He reached out to transgress his limitations as a human underneath God's authority and said, I want to call the shots. I want to define good and evil for myself. And ever since then, that's what we as a a, a human culture have been doing. We've been defining what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong for ourselves. And when they did that, two things happened. They lost the kingdom of God. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. They were, they were sent east of Eden. And remember, there was an angel that barred the, the, the very uh, entrance so that they could not go back in. And why? Why could they not go back in? God said, because they might reach out and touch or grab the, the fruit from the tree of life. In other words, we lost the kingdom of God and we lost our imperishable life. Two things that we lost. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. 
What Paul has been saying all throughout chapter 15 is that you can really boil down our whole human history as a history about two men, two different Adams. You've got the first Adam, the man of dust, but then there's the second Adam, the man from heaven, Jesus Christ. And here's what is so amazing about what Paul says about Jesus in verse three of this chapter. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Unlike the first Adam, Jesus, the second Adam, the man from heaven, he did not sin. And when he sinned, he, he, he did not uh, pull us all with him like the first Adam did. Unlike that Adam, Jesus, the second Adam, lives the perfect life that we could not have lived. And on the cross, he takes our sin upon himself, and he dies in our place for our sins. And this Jesus, he rises from the dead on the third day so that you and I could be forgiven and reconciled back to God the Father. Now, that's amazing. That's incredible news. But sadly, that's often where the story simply stops. That's where we just end the story. And then we say, and eventually he's going to come back and we're going to live with him in heaven forever. But no, notice what Paul says. All of that to say this, that in verse 50, Paul says, hey, friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have an inheritance coming for you. There are two things headed your way that you don't have yet, but one day will have when Jesus returns the kingdom of God in its fullness and an imperishable life. That is coming your way. The very two things that we lost in sin at the fall, Jesus is coming to bring us back again. How amazing is that? And what Paul is saying here specifically in verse 50 is to say when he talks about how flesh and blood won't inherit the kingdom of God and how the perishable has to put on imperishability, he's not saying that you and I are going to live in an existence that isn't physical. What he says about flesh and blood not being allowed is basically a way to say that our uh, lightweight bodies meant for this present world are not ready for and cannot survive the heavyweight world that we have coming for us. And so what God is going to do for us in his mercy is he's going to give us a heavyweight body to, to be able to survive and thrive and live in the heavyweight kingdom of God that is coming. So flesh and blood as it currently stands, your body as it currently stands, it, it, can't, it can't survive in this new world that God is bringing. That's why God is going to resurrect our physical bodies and transform them to be like his was when he rose from the dead. This is coming for you, and this should shape the way that you live, that there is an inheritance of the kingdom of God and an imperishable life headed your way. Now that leads to maybe an obvious question, well, what happens if you don't die? Because we know that when you die, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to raise us from the dead, those who are placing their faith in him. What if you don't die and he comes back? Are you just out of luck? Do you miss out on the whole deal? Do you have to die in order to be raised up imperishable? Well, that's a, a good question. And he even used this analogy of a seed getting planted and that seed dying and then it being transformed when it grows. Like a little acorn is planted in the ground, it dies, and then it becomes an oak tree. So that, do we have to die first? What happens when Jesus comes back? Well, that leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is the truth about the end. The truth about the end. Look at verse 51. It says, behold, I tell you a mystery. That doesn't mean that he's telling us something that's secret. He's, he's showing us something that was 
uh, wasn't disclosed, but now in Jesus has been disclosed to us. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. There's so much happening here, but let me just first address what I think is often our cultural reading of this text. What we often hear when we read a text like this about the last trumpet and the trumpet being sounded and a twinkling of an eye and us all changing, what we often envision with this is that Jesus is going to return and then suck us all off this earth and take us to go be with him in heaven, right? Trumpet blast, we're all changed and we go to live somewhere off there in heaven in a disembodied state in the clouds. But that's just simply not at all what the Bible teaches. Let me just give you a few clues here in our text as to what's actually happening here with this whole passage. First, notice the trumpets. Have you ever wondered, like, what's the deal with trumpets? You know, that's not like a cultural thing. We don't use trumpets a lot. Very few of you play the trumpet. If you do, awesome. But that's just not a cultural thing for us. But it was not that way in the first century, and it was not that way in the Old Testament. Trumpets made a regular appearance. They were culturally significant. In fact, trumpets were blown in various religious ceremonies. So if you're going to hold a religious ceremony, trumpets would be included. Trumpets were blown as a battle cry on the day of battle. And most significantly, most intentionally probably, trumpets were blown uh, at the return or arrival of a very significant person, like a king. If a king was off on battle and then returned from being gone in battle, trumpets would be blown to announce to the city, our king has arrived home. This is the whole way that trumpets were used. And in fact, this is exactly how trumpets are used in the Old Testament. Let me just give you a few different texts that show you this to kind of get a grid for what's happening in chapter 15. Uh, there's, a, there's a story in Exodus 19 when God himself shows up on planet earth. God comes down to the earth and lands on Mount Sinai and trumpets were involved in that. Here's what it says. Exodus 19, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. I love that line. Moses is like, here, guys, meet God, right? <laughs> meet your God. Here he is. He's arrived. Look at what he says. And, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Verse 20, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. You sound a trumpet when God shows up, and you want to meet God. Hey, here's a trumpet, right? Uh, trumpet, trumpet sounds were also promised in the Old Testament as what would occur when Jesus, the king, would return to this earth at the end of history. Zechariah 9, here's what it says. It says, then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go before like the lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will mar march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. And I love this, verse 16. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. In other words, you hear trumpets, and that should signal our king is returning, and he's going to make you and I shine like jewels on his land. What is his land? 
It's earth, the earth that he created good, that we ruined with our sin, that he's returning to restore, not just our own physical bodies, but the earth as well. When you hear the trumpets, that's the day of salvation, friends. That's a good day. That's the day of our hope. And then here's one more. I love this one. Uh, trumpets are promised to, when God comes to gather his people from the four corners of the earth. Isaiah 27 says this, and in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who are driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. In Revelation 21, we read about the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to this earth, landing on this earth. And, and, and what's going to happen is this trumpet is going to blast and God is going to gather his people from the four corners of the earth. And he's going to say, I know you've been lost, but now you're found. I know you've been far away, but I'm bringing you near. I know that you've had your physical bodies, but now I'm doing something to give you an imperishable body. I'm remaking this world. Trumpets are a big deal. Let me show you the second thing that is going to cue us that there's something more beautiful happening than we often realize. Notice this saying that Paul quotes from uh, in verse 55. He mentions a saying in verse 54, and then he quotes it in verse 55. Look at it with me. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Now he quotes Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, that's an amazing quote, but it actually is even more amazing when you realize where it comes from. It comes from Isaiah chapter 25. And when Paul writes this, he's thinking about Isaiah 25. And Isaiah 25 has the most significant stuff to tell us about what life will be like when Jesus returns to this earth, what it will feel like to live in imperishable, imperishable bodies in this world, but made redeemed by God's grace. Let me just quote from Isaiah 25. Here's what it says. It says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. Do you ever think about God as a chef? I rarely do, but this passage is saying, hey, God, God's gonna set a table and God is gonna be like, hey, let, sit down, let me cook you something. What's he gonna cook for us? Well, look, he's gonna make a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. So sorry, Southern Baptists. Uh, a, a, a feast of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. It's probably just grape juice, right? Not real wine. And, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. I love this. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord, will, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. Any, any tears on faces today? Any, any tears on faces in the season? There's coming a day when the trumpet sounds where he shows up to wipe away tears from all faces. I love this. Any reproach in the room? Any, any shame in the room? And the reproach of his people, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord, the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day. Here's our response. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. 
Friends, do you see what's happening? This trumpet sound is not us getting sucked off the planet. It's not us getting stuck inside of of an eternal worship service. When the trumpet sounds, what's actually going to happen in a twinkling of an eye and one billionth of a second, death will be swallowed up. The thing that swallows everything will be swallowed up by the power of God. Here's what that means. The curse, gone. Dementia, gone. Cancer, gone. Chronic anxiety and depression, gone. Paralysis, physical disease, gone. Pain and suffering, gone. Temptations to sin, gone. Disordered loves and desires that we struggle with day in and day out, gone. Satan and demons, vanquished. That's when we say on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, this is not the day that your life stops. This is the day your life begins. This is the day it starts. Like we're, we're on, we are on the front cover of our story. And when Jesus returns, we turn to chapter one. We turn to chapter one. And it's not a disembodied state somewhere out there. It's here on a redeemed earth in a redeemed body. I love this from N.T. Wright. He says, God will redeem the whole universe. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of that new life, the fresh grass growing through the concrete of corruption and decay in the old world. That final redemption will be the moment when heaven and earth are joined together at last and a burst of God's creative energy for which Easter is the prototype and source. And I've said this many times as an analogy. I'll say it again just because I think it's worth getting a better vision for. I think most of us, when we think about the return of Jesus, think about something related to the Left Behind book series or something in that universe. I would rather you think about the ending of the Beauty and the Beast. The ending of the Beauty and the Beast is a very helpful picture of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns to this earth. Remember what happens at the end when uh, Bell kisses the Beast and the curse is broken? You have this dark, gothic castle, and all of a sudden there's like light breaking forth on this castle. And you've got these humans that have been trapped into inanimate objects that all of a sudden the curse is broken and they get transformed back into humans again. Friends, that is exactly what will happen when Jesus returns. You're human now, yes, but he's going to really make you human when he returns. He's going to like burst forth in his creative, gracious, powerful energy to redeem and restore and remake both this world and your body so that you can live with him here the way he intended it in the very beginning. And that leads me to the last thing I want you to see, which is the truth about the present. The truth about the present. Notice what he says in verse 58. Therefore, that's a significant word. In light of everything Paul's been saying, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. How does a vision of the truth about our beginning and the truth about our end, how does that create us into people who are steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord? Let me just give you a few things briefly as we close. I think it changes our perspective on death. I think this totally changes our perspective 
on death. I've heard this passage of scripture quoted more times at funerals than any other time. In fact, maybe you're the same. Maybe you've heard this before at a funeral. And I think that's a great place to hear this text. We should read a text like this at a funeral. But often what I've noticed is that it's been totally misapplied when we quote from this text at funerals. Often we'll say something like this. Well, because of Jesus' Jesus's death, death itself has lost its sting. Well, that's not entirely true. I actually want you to notice the timing of this text. Notice what he says in verse 54. He says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? In other words, friends, death today still has sting. It still hurts. Ask anyone in our church that's lost a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or a spouse, and they will tell you that death has an incredibly painful sting. You just don't forget it when you lose someone you love. You carry that with you every day. It stings. It hurts. But here's what's so fascinating, and here's how this changes our perspective on death itself, is that yes, death stings now, and yes, death hurts, but the point that Paul's making is that there is coming a day where we will be able to say, oh, death, where's your sting? We will be able to taunt death and say, yeah, you did have a stinger at one point, but Jesus has removed your stinger, and he swallowed up death itself, and now all there is is victory and life. And that actually changes our perspective on death, right? That means we grieve, yes, but not as those without hope. The way Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That changes your perspective on death, right? And, and I, actually, I, I love this. I hope this catches on more among uh, the, the culture of our language. Um, the, the New Testament talks about people who die as people who are asleep. But our culture talks about people who die as those who have passed away. I think we should trade out the language of passing away and replace it with language of falling asleep. Because passing away is not true. They don't pass away. They're not a disintegrated soul. They're not like slipping into the ethereal non-existence of whatever. When you die, if you're a follower of Jesus, the lights don't go out. Listen, they're just sleeping. Their body is asleep, and there's coming a day where he's going to wake them back up in their body. So let's change our language to, yeah, they're, they're just sleeping. Those who have fallen asleep. And that leads me to the second thing I think this does for us is it gives us eschatological hope. That's my really nerdy word for the day, eschatological hope. It just simply means eschatology is the study of last things or when Jesus returns. And I think that this reality of our future bodily resurrection from the dead, Jesus' future return when he swallows up death and victory, I think it produces hope in us that keeps us out of one of two major ditches that we fall into all the time. The first ditch is becoming too heartbroken by the world, and the second ditch is becoming too hopeful by the world, too excited about our present world. And I think that this gives us balance, right, where we don't look out at the world and become so overwhelmed and heartbroken and lose the ending of the story. No, friends, we know the ending of the story. We know that you could sum it all up to say, Jesus wins, and the kingdom of God comes to earth, and we get to be with him. Like, that's on our worst day, that's what we have coming for us. 
And, and that actually produces a level of hope now that makes us steadfast and makes us immovable. But we remember, friends, that then shall come to pass the saying. So in other words, we're living in the tension of somehow Jesus has done it already, but it's not yet fully here. So let's hold out some of our hope for the day when he returns, amen? Let, let's not become too heartbroken and let's also not become too excited at, at our world. Like let's stand in this place of Christian hope. And finally, lastly, I think what this does for us is it changes our perspective on the significance of what we do now or to do something I've always wanted to do, quote, quote from the movie Gladiator. <laughs> Maximus says this. He says, what we do in life echoes into eternity. And what's funny, that's a brilliant quote, but what's funny about it is like, that's actually less true for him because he was a, a, a kind of a pagan that believed that he was gonna die and go to Elysium. But if you're a follower of Jesus, it's even more true. What you do now in the present life actually will echo into eternity. I want you to think about this. If you knew you wouldn't and couldn't lose the game, how would you play the game? If you knew the ending of the story, if you knew the final trumpet blow, if you really believed that this is where your life was headed, where this is where the world was headed, how would you live now? And he write again in, in a book that everybody should read, Surprised by Hope, he says, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastie, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. So friend, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to remember, no sacrifice is wasted. No amount of suffering that you face will go unrewarded. No amount of injustice and wrongdoing that you experience will go unpunished. The yeses that you say today, for Jesus' sake, they will matter. The no's that you say to yourself and your own disordered desires today, for Jesus' sake, they will matter. Your labor is not in vain. You have an inheritance coming, a kingdom of God, and an imperishable body. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Would you stand with me? There's one last verse in this passage that I want you to see. It says this in verse 56. It says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I read a story this week that uh, stuck out to me. There was a story of a, a man who was in his house when he heard his young daughter yelling, crying for help. So he ran outside to the garden where she was, and she was swatting at a bee that was buzzing around her. And he ran over to her, and he wrapped his arms around his daughter and um, at one point, she felt him wince and tighten up. And then he said these words. He said, you needn't worry now, darling. The bee has stung me, and bees don't sting twice. I think that's such a beautiful picture of what we get to celebrate today, of what Jesus has done for us. That, yeah, sin and death have been unleashed on our world, and we've done that. But God and his grace through Jesus has wrapped his arms around us through his death and resurrection 
uh, death has actually stung him. Sin has stung him. And because, because it stung him, like it can't sting us twice. And you and I now, because of his death, because of his resurrection, we get forgiveness. We get life. We get reconciliation. We get an imperishable body coming for us. We get a kingdom of God that one day will come to this earth when all tears will be wiped. That's what we're celebrating when we come to this meal. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. And I want to say, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to say this lovingly but soberly, nothing I've been saying is true of you. Nothing. It's all currently not true of you. Like, you're living a life that's perishable, and you don't have an inheritance coming for you unless you put yourself in Jesus. And the invitation that God is sending out to you is today, right now, repent of sin and respond to this good news by placing your faith in Jesus. When you repent of sin and place your faith in Jesus, he gives you his perfect life. He gives you this inheritance. He gives you this coming kingdom. And unless you respond to that call, you will not be invited in. Today's the day that you're being called out to. You're being invited in. And so as we come and take this meal, we're going to respectfully, lovingly ask you to not receive this unless you are ready to say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. And you can demonstrate that by getting in the waters of baptism, confessing sin, asking God to forgive you. We'll lower you down. We'll raise you up as an act, as an outward symbol of what God is doing in your heart. So if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then don't come and receive this meal, but come and talk to a pastor. Come and talk to one of us, and we'd love to process with you what it might look to put your faith in Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you when you're ready to come and receive this meal. Let's set our hope on that day. Do this in groups, and then we'll send you out with a blessing from Scripture in just a minute. So you're invited when you're ready. Followers of Jesus, come and receive the bread, receive the